0: Volume three, chapter thirteen of that unfortunate marriage. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. That unfortunate marriage by Frances Eleanor Trollope. Volume three, chapter thirteen. Mrs Dormer Smith's affectionate letter to her brother produced a result which she had not at all anticipated when she wrote it. He arrived in England by the next steamboat from Ostend, and took up his quarters in her house. "'He had come ostensibly for the purpose of visiting Combe Park "'and patching up a reconciliation with his uncle. "'This, indeed, was a pet scheme with Pauline. "'She had hinted at it in writing to her brother. "'Now that George and poor dear Lucius were gone, "'Lord Castlecombe might not dislike to be on good terms with his heir. "'He was old and lonely, and, as Pauline's correspondence had assured her, "'greatly broken down by the death of his sons. "'Frederick scarcely knew which to regret the most.' his niece's departure, or his brother-in-law's arrival. He missed May very much, but very shortly he began to be reconciled to her engagement. Rivers was a gentleman and an honest fellow, and might be trusted to take care of May's money, which Mr. Smith thought would otherwise be in imminent jeopardy from the arrival on the scene of May's papa. That gentleman, indeed, who had at first taken the news of his daughter's engagement with supreme indifference, showed some lively symptoms of disapprobation on learning the fact of Lucius's bequest. A daughter dependent on the bounty of Mrs. Dobbs for food, shelter, and raiment was an uninteresting person enough, but a daughter who possessed between four and five hundred a year of her own ought not to be allowed to marry without her father's consent. Frederick dryly remarked that May's capital was stringently tied up in the hands of trustees, whether she were married or single, whereupon Augustus indulged in very strong language respecting his dead cousin, and declared that the terms of the will were a pointed and intentional insult to him— who was his child's natural guardian still although the capital was secure frederick knew that the income was not and the more he observed his brother-in-law the more he felt how desirable it was that may should have a husband to take care of her captain cheffington had not improved during his years of exile he smoked all day long and even at night in his bed incensing may's chamber which he occupied with clouds of tobacco smoke he had contracted other unpleasant habits and his temper was diabolical he had not brought his wife to england with him he would sit for hours with his slippered feet on the fender in his sister's dressing-room railing at the absent mrs augustus cheffington in a way which was most grievous to pauline for he showed not the least reticence in the presence of smithson talk of floating how would it be possible to float a woman of whom her own husband spoke in that way he had no very grave charges to bring against la bianca after all she had been faithful to him and stuck to him and worked for him but he bewailed his fate in having tied himself to a third-rate italian opera singer without an idea in her head beyond painting her face and squalling it was just his cursed luck why couldn't lucius die since he meant to die six months earlier at another time he would openly rejoice in the death of his cousins and express a fervent hope that the old boy wasn't going to last much longer Pauline would remonstrate, and put her handkerchief to her eyes, and beg her brother not to speak so heartlessly of his own family, especially of poor dear Lucius, but Augustus pooh-poohed this as confounded humbug. He was uncommonly glad to be the heir of Combe Park, and thought it about time that his family and his country and the human race generally made him some amends for the years he had passed under a cloud. He would show them how to enjoy life when he came into possession of his property, as he had taken to call Lord Castlecombe's estate. He planned out several changes in the disposal of the land, and decided what rent he would take for the house and home park, for he did not intend to live in this damned foggy little island, where one had bronchitis if one hadn't got rheumatism, and rheumatism if one hadn't got bronchitis. In one respect his visions coincided with his sister's, since he talked of having a villa on the Mediterranean coast, not far from Monte Carlo, but they differed from hers in several important points, notably in providing no place for her in the villa. Frederick would sometimes throw a shade over these rosy dreams by observing doggedly that for his part he doubted the likelihood of lord castlecombe's speedy decease and that looking at them both he was inclined to consider uncle george's life the better of the two so that on the whole domestic life in mr dormer smith's smart house at kensington was by no means harmonious meanwhile pauline with considerable pains and earnest meditation composed a letter to her uncle on behalf of augustus she did not venture to entrust the task to Augustus himself. It would be impossible to persuade him to be as smooth and conciliatory as the case demanded. But she wrote a letter which, she thought, combined diplomacy with pathos, and from which she hoped for some satisfactory result. But the reply she received by return of post was of such a nature that she hastily thrust it into the fire lest Augustus should see it, and told him and her husband that poor dear Uncle George was not yet equal to the effort of seeing Augustus, after the great shock he had suffered uncle george had in fact stated in the plainest terms that if captain cheffington ventured to show himself in Combe park the servants had orders to turn him out forcibly the object for which captain cheffington had come to england at that time being thus balked it would have appeared natural that he should return to his wife in brussels but day followed day until nearly three weeks had elapsed since lucius cheffington's death and still augustus remained at kensington every morning with a dreadful regularity mr dormer smith inquired of his wife if she knew whether her brother were going away in the course of that day and every morning the shower of tears with which mrs dormer smith received the inquiry and which generally formed her only answer to it became more copious augustus on the whole was the least uncomfortable of the trio he had contrived to raise a little ready money on his expectations he was well lodged and well fed the change to london now that he had a few pounds in his pocket was not unwelcome after Brussels, and as to his brother-in-law's undisguised dislike to his presence, he had grown far too callous to heed it, so long as it suited him to ignore it. Not but that he took note of it in his mind, keenly enough, and promised himself the pleasure of paying off Frederick with interest, as soon as he should come into his property. All this time a humble household in Oldchester was a great deal happier than the wintry days were long. The news of Captain Cheffington's arrival in England had at first disturbed May, perhaps he might insist on seeing her and she shrank from seeing him but she thought it her duty to write to him and inform him herself of her engagement and neither owen nor her grandmother opposed her doing so if may had any lingering illusions about her father or any hope that he would manifest some gleam of parental tenderness towards her the illusion and the hope were short-lived the reply to her communications was a hurried scrawl haughtily regretting that Mr. Owen Rivers had not thought proper to wait upon him and ask his consent to the marriage, which he totally disapproved of, and adding that although Rivers of Riversmead was undoubtedly good blood, it appeared that the traditions of gentlemanlike behavior had been lost by the present bearer of the name, since he had entered the service of a tradesman. The letter ended with a peremptory demand for fifty pounds. May and Owen had planned that Granny was to return to Friars Row on their marriage, mr bragg was willing to break the lease which he held and to remove his office to another house hard by and mrs dobbs with all her goods and chattels was to be reinstated in her old home as this scheme was to be kept secret from granny for the present it involved a vast deal of delightful mystery and plotting Joe weatherhead was admitted to the conspiracy and enjoyed it with the keenest relish a word or two had been said as to mrs dobbs taking up her abode with the young couple when they should be married but this grannie insistently and inflexibly refused no no children i'm not quite so foolish as that it's very well for owen to take may for better for worse but it would be a little too much to take may and her grandmother for better for worse of course it was not long before owen took his betrothed to see canon and mrs hadlow they walked together to the old house in college quad where however their news had preceded them the hadlows were very cordial both of them were very fond of may and aunt jane loudly hoped that owen appreciated his good fortune and declared it was far above his deserts though in her heart she thought no girl in england too good for her favorite nephew the lovers were affectionately bidden to come again as often as they could and brighten up the old place with the sight of their happy young faces they agreed as they walked home together that the home in college quad seemed a little gloomy and lonely without connie connie was still away she had only been at home on a flying visit of a few days during several months past. She was now staying with a lady, Belcraft, who had a handsome house at Combe St. Mildred's. Mrs. Hadlow had told them so, and a word or two, uttered in the same breath about Theodore Bransby being often in that neighborhood, suggested a suspicion that Theodore might be thinking of returning to his old love. This idea annoyed Owen extremely. The hint which suggested it had been dropped almost in the moment of saying good-bye to Mrs. Hadlow or he would have attempted at once to sound her on the subject he had interrogated his aunt privately while may was being petted and made much of by the kind old canon as to a rumour which was rife in oldchester namely that constance had been betrothed to lucius cheffington but aunt jane positively denied this she admitted that the gossip had reached her own ears and that she had spoken to her daughter about it but connie entirely disabused me of any such notion she said that in the first place nothing was farther from lucius's thoughts than love-making and that in the second place it would have been a most imprudent marriage for her since she could only expect to be speedily left a widow with a very slender jointure connie was never romantic you know said aunt jane with a quick half-humorous glance at her nephew owen began to consider with himself whether it might not be his duty to acquaint canon hadlow with many parts of theodore's conduct which were certainly unknown to him all inquiries conducted either by himself or by joe weatherhead who ferreted out information with untiring zeal and delight in the task showed more and more plainly that the calumnies concerning mrs bransby could be traced for the most part to her stepson and in no single instance beyond him may had long ago acquitted constance hadlow of speaking or writing evil things of the widow constance had not in fact expended any attention whatever on the bransby family since their departure from oldchester she was spending her time very agreeably her hostess lady belcraft was a widow she was a great crony of mrs griffin's and delighted with mrs griffin's protegee having so to speak retired from business on her own account her two daughters being married and settled long ago lady belcraft was still most willing to renew the toils of the chase on behalf of a friend she and mrs griffin had carefully examined the county list of possible matches for constance hadlow and had agreed that there was good hope of a speedy find a capital run and a successful finish it so happened that on the same afternoon when may and owen were paying their visit to college quad theodore bransby was making a call at the residence of lady belcraft in combe st mildred's ever since his interview with mrs dobbs now several days ago theodore had been considering his own case with minute and concentrated attention we are all of us it must be owned supremely interesting to ourselves but theodore's interest in himself was of a jealously exclusive kind his health was undoubtedly delicate he had felt the loss of a home to which he could repair when he was ailing or out of sorts ever since his father's death he found too that he was apt to become hipped and nervous when alone he came to the conclusion that he needed a wife to take care of him, and after grave consideration he resolved to marry Constance Hadlow. If he could by a word have destroyed rivers and obtained possession of May Cheffington, he would have said that word without hesitation or remorse. But since that could not be, he did not intend to wear the willow. He would marry Constance. That she would have accepted him long ago he was well assured, and his circumstances were far more prosperous now than in those days." canon and mrs hadlow could not but be impressed by his disinterestedness in coming forward now that he was in the enjoyment of a handsome independence and on his side he believed he was choosing prudently if he were ill the attentions of a wife a refined and cultured woman dependent moreover on him for the comfort of her daily life would be far preferable to those of a hireling nurse who would have the power of going away whenever she found her position disagreeable but this was only one side of the question when he grew stronger, he always looked forward to growing stronger. Constance would be an admirable helpmate from a social point of view. She had acquired influential friends, was received in the best houses, and would do his taste infinite credit, and whether as a politician or a barrister, she might have it in her power to forward his ambitions. It was as the result of these meditations that he called at Lady Belcraft's he had met her occasionally in society and she knew perfectly who he was but there was a distinct film of ice over the politeness with which she received him when he was ushered into her drawing-room she thought this little attorney's son was taking something like a liberty in appearing there uninvited she forgave him however immediately when in his most correct manner he asked for miss hadlow really it might do thought lady belcraft the young man was very well off and presentable and all that and dear connie though simply charming had not a penny in the world "'Neither was dear Connie, her ladyship's own daughter. "'Yes, she positively thought it might do. "'She was so sorry that Miss Hadlow was not within, "'but she expected her every moment. "'She was walking, she believed, in the park. "'The park at Combe St. Mildred's meant Combe Park. "'Oh, yes, she was aware that Mr. Bransby was an old acquaintance. playfellows from childhood, really, "'that sort of thing always has such a hold on one, "'was so extremely... "'Oh, there was dear Connie coming up the drive.' Lady Belcraft sent a message by a servant begging Miss Hadlow to come to the drawing-room where she presently appeared. She was dressed in a winter toilet of carefully studied simplicity and looked radiantly handsome. Theodore gazed at her as if he had never seen her before. Self-possessed she had always been, but she had now acquired something more than that, an air of conscious distinction, of being somebody, as Theodore phrased it in his own mind, which he admired and wondered at. "'Here's an old friend of yours, Connie,' said Lady Belcraft." constance had been pulling off her gloves as she entered the room and she now extended a white well-cared-for hand to theodore with a cool little oh how do you do and the faintest of smiles her hostess thought within herself that if there really was anything between her and young bransby connie's behaviour was marvellous and that all the training bestowed on her own daughters had left them far below the point of finish attained by this provincial clergyman's daughter did you walk far are you tired she asked no thanks dear lady bellcraft i'm not at all tired i went to my favourite group of beeches it's a capital day for walking and what is the news in old chester theodore her calling him theodore in the old familiar way seemed to have the mysterious effect of putting him under her feet it implied such superiority and security theodore was conscious of this but it did not displease him she had doubtless resented his not making the expected offer earlier he had thought when he met her in london that hurt a more prop had much more to do with her cavalier treatment of him but he had a charm to smooth her ruffled plumes after a little commonplace conversation lady belcraft recollected some orders which she wanted to give personally to her gardener and with a brief excuse left the room constance perfectly understood why she had done so theodore did not but he seized the occasion which he imagined hazard had thrown in his way i am very glad of this opportunity of speaking with you alone constance he began very solemnly there was no trepidation such as he had felt in speaking to may he neither trembled nor stammered nor grew hot and cold by turns that chapter was closed he was turning over a new and quite different leaf yes said constance really she removed her hat smoothed the thick dark braids of her hair before a mirror and sat down with graceful composure "'I don't think we have met Constance since,' he glanced at his black clothes. "'No, I think not. I was very sorry. "'I begged Mamma to give you a message from me when she wrote to condole with Mrs. Bransby. "'I merely allude to that sad subject in order to assure you "'that I am not unmindful of what is proper and becoming under the circumstances, "'and lest you should think me guilty of heartless precipitation.' He was beginning to enjoy the rounding off of his sentences, a pleasure he had never tasted in May's company, strong emotion being unfavorable to polished periods. "'Oh, I don't think you are ever guilty of precipitation,' answered Constance quietly, but the mirror opposite reflected a flash of her handsome eyes. "'Nothing,' continued Theodore, "'could be in worse taste than to neglect the accustomed forms of respect.' a period of twelve months would not be too long to mourn for a parent so excellent as my father but six months could not be considered to outrage decorum and i should not urge he paused he had been on the point of saying that he would not press for the marriage taking place before the summer when he happily remembered that he had not yet gone through the form of asking constance whether she would marry him or not to him it seemed so like merely taking up the thread of a story temporarily interrupted that he had lost sight of the probability that Constance's mind had not been keeping pace with his own on the subject, but it recurred to him in time. Constance was sitting on a low couch near the fireside at some distance from him. He now took his place beside her. There was a certain awkwardness in making a proposal of marriage across a spacious room. There can be no need of many words between us, Constance, he began, with as much tenderness of manner as he could call up. Then he stopped. Constance had drawn away the skirt of her gown on the side next to him and was examining it attentively. "'What is the matter?' he asked. "'I thought you had accidentally set your boot on the hem of my frock,' she said, "'and the roads are so muddy, I thought, although it is fine overhead. But it's all right, I beg your pardon, you were saying?' This interruption was disconcerting. He had had in his head an elaborate sentence which was now dispersed and irrecoverable he must begin it all over again however when fairly started once more his eloquence did not fail him he offered his hand and fortune to miss hadlow in good set terms she was silent when he had finished and he ventured to take her hand am i not to have an answer dearest constance he asked she drew her hand away very gently with perfect composure before saying as she looked full at him with her fine dark eyes you are not joking then Joking? Well." "'I know you are not giving to joking, and this would certainly be an inconceivably bad joke, "'but it is almost more inconceivable that you should be in earnest.' "'He was fairly bewildered and doubtful of her meaning. "'However,' she continued, "'if you really expect a serious answer, you must have it. "'No, thank you.' "'He stood up erect and stiff, as if moved by a spring. "'She remained leaning back in an easy attitude on the couch and looking at him. "'I—Constance, I don't understand you!' he exclaimed. I refuse you, she replied in a gentle voice, and with her best society drawl, distinctly, decidedly, and unhesitatingly. I think you must understand that. Won't you stay and see Lady Belcraft? Theodore had taken up his hat and was moving towards the door. Oh, very well. I will make your excuses. She rang the bell, which was within reach of her hand, and Theodore walked out of the room without proffering another word. End of chapter 13